0: I am Rob138 and it is JALO in July this month. We are celebrating the fantastic JALO film genre. Uh, Before we get into that though, a couple things I wanted to touch base on. Uh, We missed the Man-Made Kaiju cast last week and I just wanted to announce that going forward the Kaiju cast will likely be just a regular kind of MonsterCast episode. Um... Maybe special episodes here and there, but it's really just because my current schedule doesn't allow me to do the podcast every Monday, unfortunately. So, just wanted to throw that out there and explain as to why the Kaiju Cast didn't happen and likely won't happen this coming Monday. Uh, beyond that, sharing is scaring. I want to put out there that I've been actually working on my YouTube channel, uh, Rob138, as it were. Um, you can go over there, check it out, uh, do a lot of like retro gaming stuff. At least that's the plan. As well as some vlogs, which is a whole thing, but, you know, there's a couple episodes over there to learn my feelings on those. Um, A lot of uh, what I talk about is, like, some mental health stuff, which uh, I'm a big advocate for. Uh, Beyond that, the only other really cool thing that I did recently was go see Fathom Events, uh, G.I. Joe the Movie anniversary event. I went and saw that uh, last week with my buddy, Um, so that was great. So yeah, moving forward, it's Giallo in July. Deep Red, or Profondo Rosso, is a 1975 Giallo film directed by the legendary Dario Argento. It was written by Argento and Bernardino as a pony. Deep Red follows a jazz musician named Marcus Daly, played by David Hemmings, who, after witnessing a murder, begins to investigate. Unbeknownst to him, he has become the killer's next target. Deep Red follows Argento's famous Animal Trilogy, which consisted of 1970's The Bird with a Crystal Plumage, 1971's The Cat O' Nine Tails, and 1971's Four Flies on Grey Velvet, and was initially intended to follow the animal theme as Argento's original working title for the film was the Sabretooth Tiger. Deep Red would be the genesis of Argento's distinctive visual style. It's the first film that he uses his trademark erratic camera behavior as well as the over-the-top murders that he became known for. Coincidentally, it is also the first time that Argento would collaborate with seminal Italian prog rock group Goblin. In addition, Argento's longtime partner Daria Nicolodi would have a role in the film, as she did Argento's next five productions. I do not want to understate the impact that Nickelodeon had on Argento's life and career. Not only was she his lover, though never married even though that is often reported, and mother to their daughter Asia, she also collaborated on many projects with him and one could argue that her presence in Argento's life elevated his films. Unfortunately, however, Nickelodeon passed away in November of 2020. According to Argento, the initial script for Deep Red was over 500 pages long and Upon sharing it with his father and brother, he shortened it to 321 pages. They were afraid that the film might be too cryptic and that audiences might not understand Argento's vision. The film was shot on location in Turin, Italy, and it took 16 weeks to film. Additional scenes were shot in Rome. Fun fact, Argento chose to shoot in Turin because at the time there were more practicing Satanists there than any other European city. So that's kind of metal. Deep Red was shot without the use of synchronized sound recording, which was commonplace uh, for Italian cinema at the time. All the dialogue would be redubbed in post production. The film was released in Rome on March 7, 1975, and would see later released in the United States on June 11, 1976. It would be released again in the US on January 18, 1980, under the title of The Hatchet Murders director Luigi Cozzi, known for the US version of Godzilla, Star Crash, Contamination, and Lou Ferrigno's Hercules, actually owns a shop in Rome called Profondo Rossi, as a tribute. Let me ask you something, did you move anything or change something around or take anything away from here? Maybe that painting was made to disappear because it represented something important. Something so important you don't even realize it. What was that? (laughs) I don't know who you are, but you gotta help me. There's somebody in the house absolutely trying to kill me, you know? Killing. There's a child singing in that house. Death. Blood. Ah! I'm scared. I'm scared. We fade in on Christmas, really unsettling music here with a child singing. There's a silhouette of someone being stabbed to death and then a knife drops to the floor and a child's feet walk up to it. We then cut to the awesome main theme from Goblin and we roll the opening credits. We then cut to 20 years later at a parapsychology conference where we're introduced to a psychic medium named Helga Ullman. She explains and demonstrates her powers to the audience just before being overwhelmed by the quote, twisted, perverted, murderous thoughts of someone in the crowd. She says she can feel death in the room. Really cool close-up shot of her mouth as she says, you have killed and you will kill again. She references the song and the scene that we saw in the intro. Here we have the first instance of the point-of-view camera as someone gets up and leaves the theater. We then go to the bathroom that may have later been used for Saw, by the way, the first, but not the last Saw or James Wan reference in this episode. Uh, We have water running, great shots of this, we pan up to see a dirty, scratched-up mirror, a uh, fellow patron in the bathroom asks if this person needs help before leaving, I would say yes, yes, they probably need some help. We cut to the leather gloves being put on. Something cool here about the leather glove shots. The close-up shots of the killer's hands were actually Dario Argento himself. Argento felt that if he did the scenes, it would be quicker and easier because he wouldn't have to spend the time teaching an actor to do the moves, citing that it would take endless retakes to get them just how he wanted them. Argento notoriously did not like repeating things. So we're back to Helga and Professor Giordani. Helga explains what she saw and heard. She tells him that she can ID the person she sensed. Little do they know, however, that someone is in the shadows watching them. We got some really great shots of children's playthings on like a black background, uh, as well as crayon drawings of murder scenes, all while the main theme plays. The color contrast makes all of this pop in its peak yellow style. The camera continues investigating the objects, and the gloved hand grabs a baby doll off the table before the camera pans to switchblades, and we get a nice close-up of someone applying uh, black eyeliner. Like I said, this is peak, peak Jello style. That night in Helga's apartment, she hears the children's song again. The camera work in her apartment is great, and the hallways are narrow, and they seem incredibly claustrophobic. Helga's door buzzer goes off, and she hangs up the phone. She goes to answer the door and hesitates because she feels a presence behind it. Just then, the door is bashed open, and a black-gloved hand brings a cleaver down into Helga's shoulder. We get some bright, bright, bright red blood spraying out, typical of this genre. Really great music, really great cinematography here. Awesome kind of swinging jazz playing, which is once again very typical of the genre of uh, giallo. The black-gloved hand crushes the notes that Helga had written that would ID them. We then cut the Marcus Daly walking across the street. I love that the only sound here is his footsteps. There's no traffic, no city noise, just him walking. He stops in front of the Fatana del Po, which is adjacent to the blue bar. The blue bar is a clear homage to Howard Hooper's famous Nighthawks painting. Daly approaches a drunk pianist named Carlo, sitting next to the fountain. Carlo says, As long as I'm drunk, I'm happy as a lark. And I remember those days. Anyway, Daly helps him to his feet and tries to get him home. The two apparently know each other. Carlo tells Daly that the difference between them is political. He tells Daly that he plays for art because he enjoys it, but he himself plays for survival, and it's not the same thing. Just then, they hear a scream from across the street. Daly asks, what was that? Dude, it was somebody screaming for their life. What the fuck do you mean, what was that? It's pretty obvious. Carlo is wasted, and he even knows that. (sighs) Carlo then makes a really bad joke about somebody getting raped before bidding Marcus adieu. After Carlo walks off, Marcus turns around and sees Helga bloodied and pressed up against her apartment window. The framing of the shot is awesome. She's obviously screaming, but we can't hear it, even though we could hear it a second ago. Just then a cleaver appears behind her and cleaves her in the back of the head. This forces her to break the glass that she's pressed against and it breaks the silence of the scene. She collapses onto the shattered edges. Awesome and frantic piece of music by Goblin here as Marcus runs up to the apartment. We get a great low camera shot tracked along the hallway floor. It zooms down the hallway following a trail of blood. Marcus is walking through the hallways of paintings. And the camera is moving really frenetically here. Uh, The scene actually gives away the ending if you're really paying attention. Marcus comes upon Helga's body and pulls it off the glass. Outside the window, Carlo is drinking in the corner again and someone in a brown coat is seen walking away from the apartments. We then cut to the police investigating the scene. They're in the hallway of paintings and Marcus asks them if they moved or changed anything. Uh, The detective says no and asks if he's crazy. He asks if something's wrong before asking him about Helga. We establish that Marcus lives upstairs and has told the police about the person in the brown coat. Just then, reporter Gianni Brezzi walks in and greets everyone. Gianni is played by Daria Nicolodi. Gianni says that she was at the lecture and notices Daly and says that she bets that he's the eyewitness and she takes a photo of him. Back at the fountain, Daly asks Carlo if he saw the person in the brown coat. And also tells him that he thought he saw a painting in the apartment but then it disappeared. Harlow drunkenly theorizes that maybe it represented something important. We get a funeral scene where Marcus and Gianni basically case everyone at the funeral before leaving. Another fantastically framed scene here as they're walking through the cemetery. We learn Gianni wrote an article about the murder and has a photo of Marcus on the front page. He sarcastically thanks her for letting the murderer know who he is. The two then drive away in Gianni's busted-ass buggy uh, and she asks for help with her story. It's a pretty funny scene here. As anything that can go wrong with the buggy does go wrong. The visor keeps falling down. His seat collapses. He locks the door and then learns that once it's locked, you can't unlock it. Pretty good stuff here. Uh, We cut back to the theater where Gianni and Marcus are investigating. We learn that someone from the 6th, 7th, or 8th row got up and left during Helga's lecture. Super helpful shit there. Awesome. Back at Marcus's, we get some exposition about his nervous quirks and why he became a pianist. Marcus asks Gianni why she became a journalist, but then he abruptly cuts her off, and they have this weird pseudo-philosophical argument about women's liberation. Marcus claims that women are weaker and gentler, and Gianna scoffs at him and arm-wrestles him. Hemmings and Nicolotti rehearsed this scene over 70 times apparently, which drove Argento absolutely nuts, because, as mentioned before, he notoriously does not like repeating things. Marcus doesn't initially want to do it, but is coaxed into doing it. They struggle, and Gianni beats him, but Marcus claims that she cheats because her elbow came off the table. Marcus then decides to head out on his own, much to the chagrin of Gianna. She asks when she'll see him again, he says never. She then asks, how about later tonight? Cut to Marcus meeting Carlo's weird mother. Uh, he stopped by to check on Carlo, but he isn't there. Carlo's mother is really into Marcus. She keeps insisting that he's an engineer before talking about her acting career. We establish she also plays piano and wants to play a duet. Marcus declines before getting the address of where Carlo is staying. We then cut the Marcus meeting Carlo's male trans lover, Massimo Ricci. Uh, It's weird, Italy was far more progressive in 1975 than we are now. But I digress. We find out that Carlo is in a bad way. Uh, He looks like he's been on an all night bender. Carlo seems to feel guilty or embarrassed by his relationship with Ricci. Ricci offers to make coffee but Carlo declines. Carlo apologizes to Ricci before leaving. Marcus looks uncomfortable when saying goodbye to Ricci, who then blows him a kiss. I love this whole scene because the only person that seems comfortable throughout the entire thing is Ricci, and it's a brief but important commentary on how some people treat those that they perceive as different. Very, very cool scene here. Back on the streets, Marcus is asking Carlo about the night of the murder. Carlo doesn't remember a lot of it because he was drunk. He then tells Marcus that he should just pack up and get out. Anyone that does something like that is sick. Marcus tells him he's fascinated by the whole thing. Marcus says he feels like the disappearing painting is more important and that the whole thing is a challenge to his memory. Carlo then tells him that if he tried to do what Marcus is trying to do, he'd wind up getting killed himself and then laughs. The camera pans into a shop where a TV is playing a news report that says Marcus can ID the killer. Back at Marcus's apartment, he's working on a piano piece. Uh, Drywall dust falls from the ceiling and onto the piano, and he doesn't notice. We see a shadow of feet walking along the skylight on the roof. Marcus then hears a noise but continues writing until he hears the children's song. Uh, Very cool close-up shot of the black-gloved hand playing a tape recorder with the song. Marcus walks back to his piano, and the song stops. He's obviously very nervous now, the camera pans over his shoulder and to his front door, which creaks open and a familiar figure slinks through. Marcus is still playing the piano but knows something is up and grabs a statue behind him for a weapon. He's still playing as to not alert the intruder that he's aware of their presence. The intruder's shadow peers through the doorway of the room that Marcus is in, and all of a sudden Marcus's phone rings. He hurries to shut and then lock the door. This scene is massively done and the tension is off the charts. He answers the phone and it's Gianna. Marcus asks for help and we hear someone on the other side of the door say, This time you're safe. I'll kill you sooner or later. That is creepy as shit. Marcus then tells Gianna that someone is in the house and they are absolutely trying to kill him. He then sees the brown coat clad individual walking away through his window. Cut to Marcus with the theater crew. Marcus has found a record with the children's song on it. Professor Giordani says that the murderer is a schizophrenic paranoid, and that in everyday life, the person is probably normal, but when they kill, they have to recreate specific conditions. Barty then brings up the house that Helga referenced. He references a story from a book called Modern Ghosts, and the Black Legends of today, in which there was a haunted house where one could hear singing with the idea of an act of bloodshed being committed in the house. Naturally, Marcus goes and gets the book immediately and finds a story called The House of the Screaming Child. The story itself shows a picture of the house, which Marcus then rips out. There's a cool camera shot from behind him which implies that he's being watched here. Marcus reaches out to Gianna and asks her to locate someone named Amanda Rigetti, who is the author of the story. For some reason, he decided to call her, however, from the loud ass kitchen from what I can only assume is the blue bar. We cut back to the black background and various toys and objects with the main theme playing. The baby doll has the yarn tied around its neck in a makeshift noose. Super awesome shots of the eyelinered eye intersplaced with the house of Amanda Rigetti. We then meet Amanda Rigetti, who finds the baby doll in her house. As she reaches for it, we hear squawking birds. She goes outside and finds her back door slamming in the wind. She then finds another baby doll hanging. Really well lit shot here, lots of shadows. We pause on her closet just as the sound effects of what I think is wind start to build to a climax. A single eye opens in the darkness of the closet, and the white of the eye really pops against the blackness. Great stuff here. Really claustrophobic stuff. Amanda's birds are going crazy, and her lights are going out. She collapses to the floor, overcome with fear, and the killer begins playing the tape of the children's song. Amanda says it's the ghost of the house, and grabs a large sewing needle. The scene is now silent, but it is broken by the sound of her birds, One flies at her, startling her, and she stabs it with a needle. Another really awesome jazz piece kicks in, and we see the silhouette of the killer behind her. The killer bashes her in the head with one of those old flashlights with, like, the red plastic caps. Those fucking things were super heavy, because we used to have those when I was a kid. So, I'm sure that shit hurt. Amanda crawls to the bathroom, only to have her face smashed into the wall. Really, really, really great jello stuff here. The killer turns the hot water on in the tub, and now we know how the wet bandage from Home Alone got their inspiration. The killer then drags Amanda over to the bathtub to simultaneously drown and burn her. The killer leaves, but she isn't dead yet. She writes something in the condensation on the wall, which disappears when the window blows open. This is absolutely brilliant stuff here. Amanda dies while pointing at the wall. Marcus pulls up to Amanda's house and finds the house in disarray and literally stumbles upon Amanda's body. Really cool burn effects on Amanda's face here. We then cut to Marcus asking around about the house in the photo and then speaking to the professor about Amanda's death, particularly her pointing. Giordani asks if Marcus thinks they found the body yet. Apparently Marcus didn't report the murder at all. What the actual shit? Giordani then says he'll go have a look. Cut to Marcus driving to the house in the picture, which is actually pretty decently sized and kind of seems like a mansion. Uh, The building seems to be up for sale, implying that no one currently resides there. Marcus further investigates with the locals. Upon speaking to the caretaker, he finds out about a writer named Schwartz who used to own it and that everyone thought the house was full of ghosts. We learn that Schwartz apparently had an accident and fell out of a window and died. That is one hell of an accident. Back at Amanda's house, Giordani is talking to the maid and then checks out the bathroom where she was found. The maid turns on the hot water to clean up the blood, which gives Giordani the idea to do the same with the bathtub. This causes condensation on the wall and reveals what Amanda had written. We're back with Marcus and the daughter of the caretaker, Olga, is sent to show Marcus the house. Her father calls her back and slaps her. He says that he told her not to do that again. We then see a lizard with a sewing needle shoved through it at her father's feet. We go back to the abandoned house where Olga tells Marcus to be careful because there are ghosts in there. Marcus investigates the house where he finds a mural of a child holding a bloody knife after stabbing someone. As Delia is leaving, a window pane comes loose and falls on him, cutting his head open. He heads back up to investigate and finds nothing. After he leaves, we get a nice shot of the mural and we see that it's not completely uncovered. Back at Giordani's place, he hears a voice say, turn back, and is then terrorized by a really, really creepy mechanized doll, which I have to think inspired James Wan to create Billy and Saul in some way. Uh, The scene of the doll is really unsettling. Giordani cleaves the doll in the head with a knife, and it kind of breaks the doll's head in half. The doll's now laying on the floor with like half a head, and it's still kicking. Uh, Just then, the killer bursts through curtains and begins to slam Giordani mouth first into various objects, including the fireplace and an end table. Eventually, the killer grabs Giordani's knife and plunges it through the back of his neck, pinning him to his desk. Most of the ideas for the deaths in this movie came from a conversation between Argento and Zapponi. They wanted to think of painful injuries that people could relate to. Uh, The thinking was that not everyone knows the pain of being shot, but at some point or another, everyone has accidentally walked into furniture or accidentally burned themselves with hot water in some way. I think that's genius. Marcus calls Carlo, only to be stuck talking to his mother again. He then realizes the window in the photo of the abandoned house is actually missing at the house now. He leaves a note for Gianna and heads back to the house. He climbs up and chisels through where the window used to be and finds a secret room. He then climbs back down and finds the fake wall in the house and breaks through. In the secret room, he finds a decomposed corpse, a living room scene, and a Christmas tree. This is the room from the beginning of the movie. He is then knocked out from behind and wakes up with Gianna outside the house, which is burning down. Gianna tells him that she found his note and came. She saw the fire in the window and ran up and pulled them out. Now Marcus and Gianna are back at the caretaker's house, waiting for the police. Marcus notices that Olga has drawn a picture identical to the mural on the wall. Olga tells him that she saw it in the archives at the school. That is a strange, strange archive. He and Gianna head directly to the school, where they break in. Another awesomely lit, but subdued set piece here. There's a really bass-heavy piece by Goblin playing... And we see the water running in the bathroom as well as kill your father and mother written in red on the wall. Uh, Once they find the archives, Gianna says that she hears something and decides that she's going to go call the police. Back at the archives, Mark finds the drawing and calls out to Gianna before noticing a shadow of someone on the wall. Marcus continues to call out to Gianna but gets no response. As he looks through the school, he finds a swaying stand-up chalkboard with someone being hanged, hastily drawn on it. As he approaches, we see Gianna clutching the wall. She's been stabbed and she collapses into Marcus's arms. She says, all this for a lousy story. You know who it is. And Marcus then confirms that he does know who it is, and he gives chase. He calls out that it's no use in hiding, and then calls out to Carlo. Carlo is then holding a gun on Marcus. Carlo says he has to kill Marcus even though he likes him. He tells him that he told him to pack up and clear out and wants to know why he didn't listen to him. Carlo is really really unhinged here and you can feel that he actually likes Marcus and wishes this wasn't happening. Just as he gets ready to fire, Detective Calcabrini comes through the window and fires at him. Carlo takes off and actually escapes for a second. But then he gets hit by a truck, and caught on the truck, and then dragged to death through the streets of Rome, including bouncing off of sidewalks. Just when the truck driver realizes that he snagged Carlo, another car comes speeding down the road and runs over Carlo's head. I absolutely love this death so much because it's not what you would expect. Ideally, you'd think that the police would catch him, and he would get what's coming to him. And while he did get what was coming to him, It was in such an extraordinary and ultra-violent way that it just sticks with you. We then find out that Gianni will survive. And Marcus, exhausted, walks to the blue bar. This, however, is not where the film ends. No, 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 no. We have still got a missing painting to figure out, remember? As Marcus is walking, he stops and he thinks, Carlo can't be the killer. Because he was with him when Helga was killed. Marcus then takes off to Helga's apartment. And we see the gloved hand gripping a gate in the distance. Marcus is investigating the hall of painting. And comes upon a mirror that catches the reflection of the adjacent painting. He then realizes that what he saw was the reflection of the killer that night. Carlo's mother. Who also happens to be in the hallway waiting for him. She says Carlo had nothing to do with any of this and that he was just trying to protect her. We get a flashback, she tells the story of that Christmas. Her husband tells her that everything will be okay and that the doctors say it's for her own good. He will take her back to the hospital. She says she is not going. Carlo is seen here as a child and he's been listening to the song that we've been hearing in the film. He then witnesses his mother murder his father in front of the Christmas tree. Back at Helga's, his mother swings a cleaver at Marcus, misses and smashes a mirror. She then chases Marcus into the hallway, where he kicks her into the elevator door, causing her necklace to get caught. She struggles to get out, but Marcus hits the down button. And this kill is so fucking cool. The necklace gets tighter and tighter and tighter on her neck the tension pulls straight through and it decapitates her. We're left with a really, really great shot of the bloody necklace hanging on the elevator gate with nothing but the sound of the elevator. We then end with Marcus's reflection in the puddle of her blood as the main theme begins to play. Jesus Christ, what do I even say? Let's start with a good. Everything. The story that Argento and Zaponi wrote is top-notch, and the pacing is fucking perfect. It's classic giallo storytelling. I love that they give you the killer right at the beginning of the movie, but only if you're really paying attention. The score by Goblin, impeccable, incredible, frenetic, and haunting. The entire cast gives fantastic performances. The shot composition, lighting, sound design, all stellar. The bad? Absolutely fucking nothing. I can't think of one single thing, and I'm serious, this is the perfect giallo in my opinion. So that said, my rating, 10 out of 10 all the way. This is my absolute favorite giallo, and I can literally sit down and watch this at any time. There are so many things in this film that would become not only Argento hallmarks, but also hallmarks of the broader giallo genre. This was the birthing point for Argento's style. And his fingerprints are still felt today all over a more modern Jolly, like The Strange Color of Your Body's Tears, and even James Wan's Malignant. 100% recommend. The movie absolutely rocks. With that said, I want to plug a couple things on the way out. Like I said, I've been working on my YouTube channel. Uh, you can find that if you just you know search for R0B138 on YouTube. Beyond that, I wanted to touch base about our YouTube channel. Going forward, I will not be doing any more of the uncut VHS uh, video podcast uh, episodes. Um, the reason is they come from a different audio source. And they—if if you've ever listened to the podcast and watched one of those videos, you can tell that they're both different. Like even the dialogue is different. There's a lot of stuff that I leave in or edit differently. I put in a lot of... Um, film from the movies that we're reviewing. I put in some, some funny meme stuff, just, you know, stuff that's, that's fun and, you know, enjoyable, but that also takes up a lot of time. And for the same reason that I had to pull back on the Kaiju cast, I also have to pull back on this. I will continue to upload the podcast to our YouTube channel, but I will not be continuing the uncut VHS editions. In their place, I will still be uploading new, uh, exclusive YouTube content um, that'll probably be much easier to consume rather than having to sit there for an hour and 20 minutes to watch the uncut VHS editions. So yeah, that's coming soon. Um, There should be a companion episode for this episode, actually, um, going up sometime this week. Uh, beyond that, you can find our social medias. You can find me at r0b__138 b on Twitter, at r0b138 on Instagram. You can find the MonsterCast at MMMonsterCast on Twitter, at ManMadeMonsterCast on Instagram, at ManMadeMonsterCast on the Facebook machine, at ManMadeMonsterCast on Patreon. I would ask that you thumbs up, like, subscribe, five-star, bell icon, all that good shit. it just helps us out a lot so with that said first episode of yellow in july under the belt i'm super stoked for the next one i've been rob 138 and i will catch on the flip side